Hello, this is Dr. Betty Rubinowitz, NextGen Healthcare's Chief Medical Officer and Principal with NextGen Advisors. I'd like to welcome you to our podcast series featuring senior leaders from the NextGen Advisors team. In this series, we address different subjects related to ambulatory care, the successes and challenges community providers experience from an operations, policy, and strategy perspective. I'm joined today by my colleagues, Dr. Marty Lustig and Graham Brown. Welcome, Marty and Graham. Hi, Betty. It's great to be here. Good afternoon. Nice to speak with you. The COVID-19 pandemic has upended the practice of medicine in doctors' offices and clinics with broad implications for practice operations and strategy. The NextGen Advisors team has been conducting a series of calls with leaders of practices across the country regarding the impact of the pandemic on ambulatory operations. Graham, you've had a lot of experience advising practices on practice redesign and optimization. If you were consulting with a multidisciplinary group with a strong primary care component, what aspects of their practice operations would you recommend they evaluate in preparation for the post-COVID period? Yeah, it's an interesting question, Betty. I think um, many practices have seen, you know, a really rapid uptake in virtual visits that they've put in place in response to their inability to do face-to-face -face encounters with their patients. And so I think for many organizations, the response to virtual visits has been very positive by their patient population. And so they may not have been using virtual visits as part of their normal um, way of going about business before. So I would certainly recommend that uh, practices of that kind think about how virtual visits will be a part of their future, what they'll look like in terms of which types of encounters should be done or can be done effectively through a virtual visit, and which ones really need to return to the face-and-face -face encounter with the provider. Um, then thinking about what the kind of implications are for the operations of instituting virtual visits on a regular basis as part of their new, opera new operating model, I'd imagine they'd also want to consider how they're going to staff those types of visits. Um, it may not need to be the uh, physician that's doing that visit, or in circumstances that is who they'd want to do that so really thinking through the type of patient, the type of clinical scenario that's appropriate for that, the staffing model that needs to be in place, those are some of the things that come to mind right away. Yeah, so um, I completely agree with what you're saying, Graham. Um, I think that the persistence of telemedicine post-COVID, you know, both from what we're hearing from providers that we talk to and what we're seeing ourselves, is likely to be the most pervasive and fundamental change that we're gonna see persist. And starting with that as the cornerstone to planning, I think uh, provider organizations, whether they're multi-specialty or single specialty, need to go through the process you're describing. What role are they gonna play? First, what's the appropriate clinical role? Then how do you weave them into the workflow and structure of your practice? And how do you deal with all the implications of that in terms of support staff, overhead, infrastructure, uh, business model, 
all of, you know, contracting models, all of those things are going to be impacted by how you decide to incorporate virtual visits going forward. Yeah. You know, there's, interestingly, there's a real kind of domino effect that I don't know that we would have anticipated in just thinking about, well, we're going to introduce virtual visits because that's how we need to care for people. But when you think about all of the process steps involved with going to see your doctor, making sure that your insurance information is up to date, that your address and your email and you have access to the portal to ensure your schedule is on time, all of those elements of other process steps, being roomed, getting your vitals taken, all of those things are going to be a different workflow in a virtual visit. And those are all the other dominoes that actually line up here surrounding the virtual visit probably need to be taken into account as well. Absolutely. I think many practices as well have described uh, in the context of COVID-19 a significant hit to volumes of uh, patients, both uh, in person, obviously, and even with correction with virtual visits, still seeing about a 50% uh, reduction in their uh, visit volumes. <clears throat> if you were a, a CEO of a practice, what are the steps you think your organization would need to take to return to pre-COVID volumes? In some ways, I think in reality, it may be difficult for um, organizations to actually return to pre-COVID volumes, at least for a period of time. I think there's going to be a considerable amount of anxiety on behalf of the general public on going into a clinical environment if they don't need to. So I guess, you know, I would look at a couple different things. One would be access. So virtual business is one mechanism for access, telephonic interventions. But then for those patients that do indeed want to go into the clinic environment, um, recognizing just as we did with uh, virtual visits that patient satisfaction and experience are really important. And so I would actually look at access hours. Are the clinics open early in the morning to see uh, pediatric appointments before kids go to school? Are they open after hours in the evenings or on weekends? So I think access is one part of it, wherein if there's broader appointment availability, you may be able to fill out the schedule more completely and actually generate the visit volume that you need. Um, I think outreach to patients in terms of ensuring that you're communicating to them that you have a clean and safe environment for them to come to. Uh, that you've taken the necessary precautions to ensure the well-being of your staff and the patients that you're going to be seeing. And to the extent that you need to continue to you know, provide masks, personal protective equipment, be able to provide testing uh, for patients um, with regard to COVID, those are all some of the kind of immediate implications that I would think would need to be part of the mix to really think about reopening in a safe and effective way. So. I agree with a lot of what you said, Graham. I think in the short run, uh, the focus on patient engagement and really assuring you're, you're meeting the patients when, where, and how they want to be uh, seen or, or receive services is really critical, both in the short run as a way to reestablish volumes, but also to build your foundation going forward for however the future is going to evolve. I think that's a really critical component of the strategy. Coming from, as I do, having spent the first half of my career in a globally capitated environment, I come at this issue with a bias, which is 
they've in the last month and a half, practices have learned an incredible amount about how to be much more efficient in the care of their entire panel of patients. Those that have population health capabilities have employed them to identify high-risk patients. They're doing both manual and automated outreach. They're connecting through virtual visits, which is much more efficient than bringing the patients in. They've built all these efficiency capabilities. It would be sad in my mind if they don't look at the long-term opportunity to move further away from volume as the, as the criteria for their revenue stream and begin to look at aggressively moving to a value-based contracting system where they can actually improve their financial performance by building on the efficiencies that they've already created. Tie that together with a strong patient engagement strategy, and I think those organizations are going to be leading going forward. Mm. Um, <clears throat> that's an interesting observation, Marty, that in many ways, value-based care has not taken uh, a leave of absence during COVID, but in many ways has had some amplification because of the successes of some groups who were in value-based arrangements and then some of the characteristics of the uh, post-COVID uh, reality. Um, we, we've heard about uh, many practices uh, being forced to furlough or even lay off some of their staff, and this includes clinical and non-clinical staff. And in our conversations with these leaders, some of them have said that they will use this period of time to very cautiously contemplate who they bring back and what their staffing models look like in the post-COVID uh, era. How do you feel that uh, staffing in a, let's give an example of a primary care office will uh, change post-COVID? Uh, Graham. Well, I, I do think that, um, you know, there's a number of different care uh, clinical and non-clinical roles involved in managing a practice, uh, from the receptionist or the front desk person that you check in with that validates your insurance to the person that's going to room you, take your vitals. You know, in different practices, there's a huge variability as to what um, clinical expertise and training the people that do those functions, particularly, you know, the, the medical assistants, RNs, LPNs, etc., play. And so, there's no specific model that's appropriate for every clinic environment. And indeed, that variability has arisen, I think, at the behest of providers individually determining how they want to set up their practice. Um, given that, there is an opportunity to kind of step back and evaluate what is the most kind of efficient and effective way. How do you truly use the clinical skills that these care team members have in a, an effective and appropriate way. You know, the, I'm not a real fan of the term of people working at the top of their license, but this is an example where indeed you do want to do that um, to the greatest extent possible and recognize that there's a lot of routine tasks that um, people can be trained on that don't require a clinical background necessarily. And so I think really evaluating what's the task and the work effort that needs to be accomplished, what the appropriately trained resource to accomplish that work and then being willing to move folks in and out of different functional roles and recognizing at the end of the day 
what your total full-time equivalent staffing need is. Looking then at the staff that you actually have in place and reconciling those two. Understanding then how you can redeploy staff within that environment to be more effective, be more engaged, give them new opportunities in the roles that they're going to have in the future. Yeah, I, I think those are good insights, Graham. I would um, add that I, I think that the if in fact people practices integrate virtual care into their practice in a meaningful way, it will by necessity change the workflows and the functions that the non-providers in the office, as well as the providers, but particularly the non-providers, whether they're clinical or non-clinical, the the types of functions, the amount of time it takes, the skills that are needed to do those functions. And I think, uh, I don't know that we have the answers to the question of how much of which skill set is needed. I think that practices are going to need to spend some time in resources to figure out, given their particular situation, how do you quantify those needs? What services, support services, are going to be delivered from people who work from home versus those who work in the office? And I suspect that as more and more uh, visits are provided virtually, that more and more components of the visits will be automated. And as, as the, for those practices that have strong infrastructures that make it relatively seamless for the patient and for the provider, the need for support staff to be engaged in the middle of that interaction will be diminished. So I expect that over time, there's gonna be some significant efficiencies there in staffing, but I don't think anyone's quite figured it out yet. This is clearly a really interesting and broad and evolving topic. And I'm sure that our group will revisit this in our blogs and in future podcasts. Thank you, listeners, for joining us today. I'd like to thank Dr. Marty Lustig and Graham Brown for sharing their insight perspectives about practice in the post-COVID era. If you've enjoyed today's topic, consider subscribing to our podcast. This is Dr. Betty Rabinowitz with NextGen Healthcare. Have a great day. <music>